welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to The Life of Jesus. Uh, this is series 13 and episode 2 in which Judas Iscariot betrays Jesus on the last night of his earthly life and we're in the midst of a very intense drama which has been building up gradually during series 11 and series 12 and if you followed the series you'll be familiar with the story. Just in a few days a huge amount of uh, events have taken place that are incredibly significant in understanding um, the life of Jesus and particularly the death of Jesus and its significance. Series 11 told us about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in triumph on Palm Sunday uh, with great crowds attending him. Then we heard about Jesus going into the temple compound on the Monday, the following day, and challenging the market traders who were put there by the priests and others uh, and making money out of the religious sacrificial system. On Tuesday, we see Jesus back in the temple compound again, being questioned in a very hostile way by the religious authorities and then leaving, spending time just outside the city with his disciples talking about the future and uh, prophesying things that were going to happen in the future. And then on Wednesday, we find Jesus in Bethany, uh, where he uh, was probably staying um, at a meal hosted by a man called Simon the leper. And that's the moment when Judas Iscariot, his disciple, finally uh, carried out what he'd been thinking about for a long time, which was uh, a decision to leave Jesus's uh, discipleship group and to turn against him and indeed to betray him. Now, that's the trigger for the events uh, that are uh, going to happen in this particular episode. And I've been careful to tell the story of Judas Iscariot as we've gone through each episode. So on Wednesday, he went to the high priests and the religious authorities who were hostile to Jesus, trying to uh, get rid of him. They believed he was a false messiah looking for a way to arrest him. That He went to them and, and uh, came to an agreement with them that he would find a way of uh, giving them information about how to arrest Jesus quietly uh, away from the crowds. Uh, and this was the plan that they agreed together. However, no one knew anything about what Judas had done amongst the disciples. So they gathered on Thursday evening, which is the day we're talking about now in this episode. Uh, we're right at the end of that evening and moving towards the, the beginning of the, the following day, right deep into the night. But on that Thursday evening, as we saw in the second half of series 12, Jesus uh, spent time with his disciples in what's become known as the Last Supper, a Passover meal. And lots of details about the Passover meal were given to us by different gospel writers, which we looked at quite closely in the second half of series 12. If you've not uh, seen those episodes, then uh, it's worth looking at that because it's uh, got some tremendously important uh, uh, material that helps us to understand everything that follows. And not least, uh, how Jesus uh, instituted the Lord's Supper, past communion or the Eucharist uh, during that time, and also all the teaching that he gave his disciples to prepare them for the great trauma that was going to happen to them uh, as a result of his arrest. And that trauma for the disciples is going to happen in this very episode that we are uh, studying today. So the drama and the tension is very great in the narrative. And... 
the gospel writers give us different perspectives. And this particular situation and story is interesting because uh, both Matthew and John give us a lot of detail that's very complementary, but they give us some different detail from each other. And in order to piece the story together effectively, the, the simplest way to do it is actually to read Matthew and John's accounts uh, kind of in parallel. So I'm going to tell you the story in detail by reading to you sections from Matthew and John and alternating between the two and fitting it together in that way because that gives us a, the fullest account of the incredibly dramatic events that take place uh, in this situation. This is a good example of the way that uh, we've been looking at the Gospels all the way through which is to try and find ways of integrating the different information and perspectives they bring. Sometimes it's, it's a little bit like a, a careful forensic investigation just to see uh, which details fit where and, and it's a very exciting thing to do because the gospel writers all have different perspectives, they have different sources of information, they have different things they want to emphasise and when you join them together um, the picture is much fuller and richer and our understanding is greater. So I'm going to read to you a series of short extracts from John 18 and Matthew 26. I'll introduce the uh, references for each one as we go along, but I'm going to read the story all the way through on this occasion because I think it gives us the best feel of this incredibly dramatic event that took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. And of course, it takes place immediately after the suffering of Jesus as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He waited there after the Last Supper for some time, prayed, his disciples all fell asleep, and we looked at that last time. He just knew what was going to happen. He knew that Judas would be coming along soon with an armed gang, and he was just waiting. And he knew that Judas would be pretty sure to know where Jesus was at that time. Let's read the story. John 18 verses 1 to 3. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Matthew 26, verses 48 to 50. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus... Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. John 18, 4-11 Jesus, knowing what was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? 
Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, said Jesus. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost any of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Matthew 26, verse 52 to 56. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. John 18 verses 12 to 14. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. John 18, verses 19 to 24. Meanwhile, the high priest, that is Annas, questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. I read the whole story to give you a sense of the drama and some of the important details. Let's comment on it. Let's think about it for a moment. This was very late at night. It might have been before midnight. It might even have been in the early hours of Friday morning. It was dark. Judas had left the Last Supper. He'd gone to the authorities and had predicted that Jesus would go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And John 18 tells us the reason that Jesus often went there on his way from Jerusalem back to Bethany via the Mount of Olives. And Judas was right. Judas had 
done a deal with the high priests and the religious leaders and he was awaiting a financial reward. John 18 verse 3 tells us that the temple guard or the soldiers came heavily armed but they came with lanterns or torches. Light was really important. In this dark moment they needed to identify Jesus. They didn't know whether he would flee and just flee into the darkness in the middle of the night. They didn't know what his disciples would do. They didn't know whether the disciples would fight them or run. And how could they identify which one was Jesus in the darkness if there were 12 people there, 11 disciples and Jesus, uh, resting, uh, talking, sleeping, whatever they might be doing? How could they identify Jesus? And so Judas had the responsibility with the help of the lanterns and the torches to look around when they found the group of disciples to identify Jesus because obviously he knew him well and to identify him with this a sign of the kiss. As soon as that sign had been given, uh, the guards knew exactly what they needed to do. They wanted to arrest this one man. They weren't that interested in the rest of the disciples. They didn't make any serious attempt to arrest them all, but they wanted to arrest Jesus. But even as they were grasping hold of him, and arresting him and Jesus was not uh, not resisting as he spoke to them and spoke about who he was and identified himself said I am he it's interesting that the power of God came and they fell to the ground this is an interesting detail that John adds Jesus's power is still there it was a prophetic sign that the real power lay with Jesus the divine son of God not with those who were temporarily seeming to control him through arresting him. Then comes the impulsive action of Simon Peter. You may remember that there was a discussion about swords in the upper room, as recorded in Luke chapter 22, which we looked at in series 12. Now, the swords that we're talking about here were short daggers that were carried around by people for self-defence purposes and were used by terrorists and those who opposed the Roman rule um, as the means of assassinations. Uh, people like the zealots used to carry uh, these small swords under their clothing and uh, assassinate Roman officials. So these swords were small uh, but also very powerful. Now where did Peter get this sword from because we have no record of the disciples carrying swords uh, in any period earlier on far from it it appears that there were two swords that they found in the upper room as recorded in Luke 22 verse uh, 38 when they they said to they said to Jesus Lord see here there are two swords and they must have decided to take the swords with them. Peter took one. And in this impulsive moment, when he really wanted to do something to defend Jesus, he struck the servant of the high priest who was part of the crowd. And he struck him in such a way that his, his ear was uh, cut off. But Jesus stopped this violence, rebuked Peter and healed the servant how amazing that Jesus should heal somebody at the point 
when the very person he healed was part of a group of people who'd come to arrest him and their intention was to kill him. But Jesus healed the servant. He rebuked Peter, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Matthew 26, 52. Now Jesus knew where true power lay. Continuing that passage, Matthew 26, 53. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Jesus had immense power. Legions of angels could be brought to play in any situation that Jesus was involved with. But Jesus was choosing the path of suffering and of not defending himself in this situation. He allowed himself to be arrested. And as soon as he was arrested, of course, the disciples lost their confidence and fled. They just ran away. This was exactly what Jesus anticipated would happen. And during the Last Supper, he had been preparing them for this moment so that although they were shocked by what had happened, he didn't want them to leave Jerusalem. He didn't want them to give up. He didn't want them to uh, lose their faith in him. He wanted them to be strong and he encouraged them uh, to, to be so. But this is the moment of intense weakness. Peter's made a foolish gesture by striking the high priest's servant with a sword. He's been rebuked, uh, put in his place by Jesus. And they're watching their master willingly allowing himself to be arrested. This had never happened uh, in, in the life of Jesus up to this point. There'd be a number of occasions when he was in Jerusalem when the threat of him being arrested was definitely there. And the threat of being him being stoned by a hostile crowd was there several times, as recorded in John's Gospel. But this arrest is something new. This is a very traumatic thing for the disciples to deal with. They are disorientated. It's very late in the night. They're very tired. And very suddenly, this noisy crowd with, uh, with its lanterns and its torches and its swords has come and very roughly arrested Jesus and taken him away. Now, John adds an interesting detail here, that the first place they took him to was to the house of a man called Annas, John 18, verse 13, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas was the high priest at that time. He'd been high priest for quite a number of years. So he was the senior religious official in the whole nation. He ran the temple, he oversaw the priesthood, and he was the chairman of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council, which we'll come to uh, when we study the trial that takes place shortly after this. But Annas was still regarded with great respect. He was an old man, and he still retained the title high priest, um, as a lifelong title, even though he didn't have the power. His son had succeeded him, and then his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Indeed, 
The market trading that took place in the temple at this time was known as the market or the bazaar of the sons of Annas. They, this family controlled the temple and the priesthood and to a great extent the Sanhedrin. And what Annas was doing at this point was uh, conducting a preliminary investigation. He wanted to find out what Jesus was going to say um, at this point before he passed him over to his son-in-law Caiaphas um, who was going to uh, interrogate him more fully. Let's now just uh, pause a moment and go back to Matthew's statement um, in chapter 26 verse 52 to Peter. There's a little bit more reflection needed in order to understand the significance of Jesus' words when he said, put your sword back in its place for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Now this is a, is a, is a big statement about a very important subject. We touched on it a little bit in uh, the end of series 12, when uh, Jesus spoke about uh, those two swords that were found in the upper room, and uh, we discussed that in that particular episode. But here he makes a very important statement that's often been quoted. All who draw the sword will die by the sword, or all who live by the sword will die by the sword, is a common um, equivalent way of expressing it. Our earlier discussion was in episode uh, 12 of series 12 if you want to go back to that one but there are some things that are important to say here first of all Jesus advocated to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount non-violence in their life of faith and in their preaching of the gospel Matthew chapter 5 verse 38 to 42 is the key text and you can go back to series 4 and listen again to the teaching that I gave on that particular passage, which is very foundational and very important. The advancing of the gospel should, should never be accompanied by any use of force to persuade people by any means to believe in Jesus Christ. It's the power of the message, not human force, that does it. And Jesus anticipated that his followers would experience opposition and persecution. And he advocated uh, an approach of non-violence when threatened with violence. And that's really the issue here. There's a threat of violence. The armed guards, the temple guards had come fully armed. They were prepared for a fight. If the disciples had fought them, they'd have fought back. They'd have tried to kill them on the spot. There was a threat of violence. Jesus was being threatened. Violence was being used against him. Violence was used to arrest him by force. And Peter's response was to raise one of the swords that he'd found in the upper room just a few hours earlier. But Jesus had advocated non-violence. And Jesus never carried any weapon. He never defended himself when facing a physical threat. He trusted in the providence and power of God to defend him. Even though the disciples had found two swords in the upper room, they were probably ceremonial swords. Jesus rebuked Peter when he used one of them in an aggressive action. 
And as we look forward into the book of Acts, we find that the apostles and the early church didn't carry weapons in order to advance the gospel. And that is the situation all the way through the New Testament. This verse, of course, says nothing about the important role of the state to provide justice for its citizens, to defend its citizens, to provide uh, a military force and a police force and associated resources through the state to bring about a vibrant and a healthy and a just society. The New Testament tells us that God has called into existence the concept of the nation state and given it power, and that, that, that includes uh, the power of force in order to, to fulfil its duties. That's one thing. And Christians may be called to participate in the state and be servants of the state and work for the state in some of those functions. But as individuals and as Christians advancing the gospel, we are called to non-violence. As we come to the end of this remarkable episode, this very dramatic scene, very sad scene in a way, very tragic scene, there are some things that we can say by way of conclusion. Matthew 26, verse 56 says, Jesus said, all of this has taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. This is a common theme of Jesus. The writings of the prophets are in his mind. But what writings does he have particularly in mind? Well, two scriptures uh, are important. Messianic texts, prophetic texts that speak about the Messiah. One is Psalm 22, which we'll come back to uh, in the context of the crucifixion. But the most important one is in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 to chapter 53, verse 12. It's a long prophetic passage and it's quoted by Jesus on a number of occasions and clearly it's central in his thinking. Isaiah, in a number of places, prophesies the future coming of an individual person who, person who he describes as the servant of the Lord. Israel is generally the servant of the Lord, but out of Israel is going to come an individual. And this person emerges in the text of Isaiah in chapters 42, 49, chapters, and chapter 50. And then for the fourth time in this passage that I've just mentioned where this servant is described as someone who suffers, who dies and makes an atoning, sacrificial and substitutionary death on the behalf of other people. Let me just read a couple of verses. They're quite well-known verses, but very important for our purpose here. For example, Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
This is a famous part of a, of a, a, a long prophecy which is well worth studying. And it predicts a suffering servant who will die an atoning, substitutionary and sacrificial death on behalf of others and take their sins upon himself. Jesus knew that he was called to do that and he knew that this was the time that these scriptures and others like them had to be fulfilled. And that's why Jesus, with utter grace and humility, allowed himself to be arrested and allowed himself to be betrayed by one of his own disciples, betrayed with a kiss. This is a poignant and sad moment in the life of Jesus. But there's a divine purpose being fulfilled, even in this dark nighttime hour in the Garden of Gethsemane. I hope you'll join us for the next episode. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.